We are going to be in that chapter this morning, Daniel chapter 3. And if you're following along in your pew Bibles, it's on page 739. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 30. Uh, the title of this sermon is Standing Alone Together with God. On April 18th of 1521, uh, a man by the name of Martin Luther would stand trial before what was known as the Diet of Worms. Uh, commanded to repudiate his writings, he stood alone with his conscience against an array of powerful clergy and statesmen. And the following words come from the transcript of this amazing moment in history. So he stood and he said this. He said, Most serene emperor, illustrious princes, gracious lords, I this day appear before you in all humility, according to your command, and I implore your majesty and your august highness, by the mercies of God, to listen with favor to the defense of a cause which I am well assured is just and right. I ask pardon if by reason of my ignorance I am wanting in the manners that befit a court. For I have not been brought up in a king's palaces, but in the seclusion of a cloister. And I claim no other merit than that of having spoken and written with the simplicity of mind, which regards nothing but the glory of God and the pure instruction of the people of Christ. Two questions were yesterday put to me by his imperial majesty. The first, whether I was the author of the books whose titles were read. The second, whether I wished to revoke or defend the doctrine I have taught. I answered the first directly. And I adhere to that answer, that these books are mine and published by me, except so far as they may have been altered or interpolated by the craft or officiousness of opponents. As for the second question, I am now about to reply to it. He then carries on for several paragraphs, kind of outlining explicitly what he wrote and taught. Uh, and then, as he's coming to a close, he says these famous words. He says, since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council, because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and given into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture, by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my, my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word. And here we go. He says, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. When up against the most powerful people in the world, Luther chose to obey God and God's word instead of bowing the knee to falsehood. Throughout church history, there are numerous examples of courageous Christians just like that, doing exactly this type of thing, being prepared to stand alone. But even for those unfamiliar with church history or the Bible, 
most people know about the story that we just read in our text today. It's a story of faith. It's a story of courage. And it's a story of God's grace. So I'm going to pray once more for us and then dive into the text. God, we thank you so much for your word. And we ask that your word would speak to us today. God, we pray that your word would convict us, that it would challenge us, and that it would encourage us in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our three points for today's text are these. Point one, a foolish king. Point two, a faithful resistance. And point three, a faithful God. So point one, a foolish king. If you're following along, we'll be in verses one through seven here. So verses one through seven, what's going on here? Well, to understand this chapter, chapter three, we first have to look back to last week's chapter that we studied. Chapter 2. Do you remember the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and Daniel interpreted last week? I'll just try to give a brief summary of it. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, he had this dream of this image with a head of gold. The rest of the image was made of differing materials, representing different kingdoms. Then there was this rock in the dream that smashed them to pieces. And that rock represents the kingdom of Christ. Daniel finished in chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, by saying this. Speaking of this rock, he says, It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar, in the dream last week, in chapter 2, is the head of gold, right? Who will eventually lose his kingdom. His response to Daniel's interpretation was this. Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. He then promotes Daniel and his friends. He feels like things are, are moving in the right direction. And then chapter 3. He builds a 90-foot statue, not just with a head of gold like the dream last week, but all of gold. Just stop and picture that for a moment. It's about nine feet in circumference at the base and nine stories high, made of gold. You see what's happening here? He doesn't just want to be the head of gold that gets crushed by another kingdom. He wants to reject the word of the Lord and run the entire thing. He's trying to resist the will of God. Further, we can't forget where all of this is taking place. Recall from chapter 1 that they're in the land of Shinar. This is where the Tower of Babel was built in Genesis 11. Again, 
Daniel 3 is meant to parallel Genesis 11. Genesis 11, 1 through 4. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Do you see that? Nebuchadnezzar in, in Daniel 3 has gathered this diverse group of satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials, O peoples, nations, and languages. Do you see that? And what's he doing here? Just like Genesis 11. He's making a name for himself. He's trying to unify everyone around him. He's trying to reverse Babel around his name. This is foolish and wicked. But it even gets worse. He not only gathers everyone around his name, he calls them to worship the image. To emphasize the foolishness and wickedness here. This word worship is repeated 11 different times in this chapter. Now, why is that an issue? The text almost comically shows us. Look again at verse 1 of our chapter. Verse 1 of chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. This image from the beginning, Daniel wants us to know, is man-made. Then, nine times the author uses the word set up to describe what the king has done with this image. He's trying to set up something to impress others and celebrate himself. See, he's failed to understand what Daniel proclaimed in chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Daniel said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. And here's what he says. He, speaking of God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and what? Sets up kings. God alone sets up kings. Remember Psalm chapter 2. Listen to this language from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 verses 1 through 6. Why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth do what? Set themselves. And rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God alone sets up kings. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't believe that. He's calling for worship. And every Jew reading this text would immediately see that this is a violation of both the first and the second commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. 
And then second, you shall not worship any graven image. So this is foolishness and wickedness. And it's also totalitarianism. What do I mean by that? Well, here's the definition of totalitarianism. A system of government that is centralized and dictatorial and requires complete subservience to the state. This guy, Nebuchadnezzar, is placing himself before God, commanding worship, commanding complete subservience, rebelling against God's word. Frederick Nietzsche, he once said this. He said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? That's what's going on here with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. He can't bear not to be God. Do you see how religious this all is? They even have a praise band to stir the emotions of the people before this image. So know this. As a former worship leader myself, I love good music just as much as the next guy. But true worship isn't about an emotion that's stirred by good music. True worship isn't about what we like or don't like. It's not about our preferences. True worship has God as its object. And God gets to define it. I'll say that again. True worship has God as its object, and God gets to define it. A key question that we should always ask is this. Who gets to define how God desires to be worshipped? The answer to that is God. He's the object of our worship, and he gets to define how he's worshipped. Now, I'm going to leave that there for now, but if you want to do a deep dive on that, uh, Christians throughout the ages have described what I just taught on as the regulative principle. And that's uh, our philosophy of worship here at Santa Cruz Baptist, that God gets to define how he's worshipped. He actually says a lot in his word about how he desires to be worshipped. Now, before we move on, I want us to see what kind of pressure was on these three young men. Because it's so relevant for us today. Uh, this guy named Dale Ralph Davis, he, he's noted four different areas of pressure that these young men are under. First, the pressure of authority. Uh, in the first seven verses, the phrase King Nebuchadnezzar is used six different times to stress his authority. It's only used twice the rest of the chapter. So understand this. Yes, Romans 13. God has given authorities over us. That's true. But when those authorities are commanding you to do something against what God has commanded you to do, don't bow down. These Three guys had real pressure of authority over them. So know God's word. Know God's commands. 
pay attention. God's authority always supersedes human authorities. So they had the pressure of authority over them. Second, the pressure of conformity. Notice this group that's gathered there around them. All kinds of civil servants and officials. Then, verse 7, it says, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everybody's doing it, right? Christians, do you realize how much pressure there is today for us to conform? Whether it's the sexual revolution or abortion or a number of other things. What's the common slogan that gets thrown at us? Christians, get on the right side of history, right? Meaning, Everyone has taken this position. You better get with the program, Christians. Maybe it's just the idea of holiness in general. There's so much pressure for us to conform to the world's morality. To not pursue holiness as defined in God's word. It might not look like this scene on the plains of Dura. But don't miss it. There's pressure for Christianity. There's pressure for you to conform. Bow down to the current cultural idols. Don't do it. As Christians, we must be prepared to stand alone. Together. Trust me. Because of the pressure of conformity, It will feel like you're alone, but you're not. More on that later. Third, there's the pressure of malice here. Notice verse 8. It says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. This attack on our three friends wasn't in good faith, was it? malicious. These Chaldeans seem to have a plan. Who knows? Maybe they were upset because they were passed over for the positions that were given to these three men. We don't know. We do know that their attack was malicious. And again, this is relevant to us. Living the Christian life, obeying God's commands, will lead to criticism from the world. Sometimes malicious criticism. You'll probably be called and labeled all sorts of things for following Christ. This kind of pressure is alive and well, friends. Fourth, the pressure of intimidation. Look at verse 6. It says, And whoever does not fall down and worship, shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There's real teeth to the commands of the earthly king here. Here's the deal. In many countries of the world today, even this morning, 
Obeying God can cost you your life. Maybe we're headed into a time of costly obedience right here in our country. Again, to quote Davis, he says this. He says, The way then is clear if costly for God's people. The writer holds before you this episode because he wants you to make the same response as Daniel's friends. I will believe and obey the first commandment, even if it kills me, and it may. You see what kind of pressure these three men were under? You see how relevant these pressures are to us today? So, how did they respond? Point to a faithful resistance. Faithful resistance in verses 8 through 18. And if some of this is sounding familiar to you, um, to my first sermon on Daniel 1, good. It's meant to be. The text is repetitive. Different situations, different storylines, but the same basic structure over and over and over again in the book of Daniel. Opposition to God and his people. Faithful resistance. God being faithful. Daniel wants us to know that Satan doesn't usually tempt you once and then just leave you alone. No, that's not how he works. One author said it this way. Satan's onslaughts are not occasional activities. Christian life will be full of temptations and trials. Full of opportunities to either disobey God or to obey God full of opportunities to rebel against him or to trust him. Do you see the purpose and the repetition here? This is why Paul charges us as Christians in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil." devil's schemes are repetitive. Our faithfulness must be repetitive, knowing that God is faithful. Okay, so look again at verses 8 through 18. In summary, our three friends get ratted out. Nebuchadnezzar is ticked, and then he graciously gives them a second chance to bow down. Look at verse 15. He says, now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship me, or worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? In other words, okay, boys, now I'm going to... Cue the praise band again. Maybe you misunderstood me the first time. But if you don't bow down, you're going to burn. And this question that he asks here is key. He's actually going to have to answer his own question later, but he asks this. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Then, this is amazing, maybe one of the best responses of all time. Now, Martin Luther, uh, in, in his Here I Stand speech that we read earlier, 
He asked for a full night to sleep on it before he answered. So they asked him those two questions. He said, I need to sleep on it and think about this before I answer. Daniel's three friends here don't even hesitate, do they? These guys were the precursors to the apostles in Acts 5, who stood before a raging council and said, we must obey God rather than men. They don't hesitate for a second. Look at verses 16 through 18. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Do you notice where their faith is in that statement? Remember Hebrews chapter 11 that that John read for us earlier. It's the hall of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 34 tells us that these three men had faith that quenched fire. Well, where's their faith? Not in themselves. Verse 17 of our text, these three men said, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. You see that? They have complete confidence in the power of their God. Even if they don't yet know his purpose or his exact plan. What do I mean by that? Verse 17 is followed by this amazing statement of faith. Verse 18. They say, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What do they mean by if not? Now understand this. They're not questioning God's ability to save them. Even for a second. God is able to save them. They know that. The if has to do with them actually being delivered from suffering. One commentator says that true faith does not predict God's ways. It simply holds to God's word. True faith does not predict God's ways. It simply holds to God's word. And that's exactly right. That's what these guys are doing. They're not predicting God's ways. They're simply holding to his word. They're completely submissive to God's will, regardless of the earthly outcome. If they're delivered from the flames, God gets glory for that. If they die for their faith, God gets glory because he's rightly seen as being worth dying for. Do you see that? We see both sides of this in Hebrews 11. I'm just going to read it for us again. Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 36. It says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, here we go, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, 
became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Do you see that? Some stop lions, quench fire, escape the sword. Others suffer, are sawn in two, are killed. True faith, trusting God regardless of the ending details of his plan, regardless of the outcome here on earth. Whether we're delivered or die, we trust God's goodness and his righteousness. And we bring glory to him in that trust. We're going to trust God, even if he decides not to deliver us. We're called not to have faith in faith, but faith in God. These men don't just resist, but they resist in faith. Let's keep moving. So we've seen a foolish king. We've seen a faithful resistance. Now, what happens? How does it turn out? Point three a faithful God, verses 19 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar essentially says, worship or die. They respond with, we'll trust and obey God. You've got to think that there's at least a, a little hint of respect for them here. I mean, he's the most powerful man on earth and he's threatening to kill them. They're unfazed. Respect, right? But he's enraged. He's filled with fury, the text tells us. He has the fire heated up seven times what it usually is. Not that the fire wouldn't have killed them before, but he's really going to kill them now. He's going to make an example of them with fire. Now, side note. In Scripture... Fire is associated with one of two things, either judgment or refinement. Judgment or refinement. I don't have time to go through all of those scriptures at the moment, but keep that in mind. Fire either destroys or tests judgment or refinement. Look what happens. They're bound in all their clothes, and they're thrown in. Verses 22 and 23. Because, of the king, because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. So the mighty men of the army are scorched and killed. Instantly. But what about the other three? Let's keep reading. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, O tr uh, true, O king. He answered and said, 
But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Here is one of the main points of the text. Don't miss this. How many went into the fire? Three. How many did they see in the fire? Four. The fourth, like a son of the gods. There's a lot of speculation about whether or not this is the pre-incarnate Christ with them in the fire. Maybe, maybe not. I lean towards that it is, but the text doesn't explicitly say here. But there's no doubt about what is being said here. God is with them. God is with them. See God's goodness here, Christian. What did God say to his people in in the Exodus? Exodus chapter 3, verses 6 and 12. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But I will be with you. I will be with you. Isaiah chapter 43 Verses 1 through 5. What did God say to his prophet? He said, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not. Why? For I am with you. Do you see that? He doesn't promise to take them around the water or clear of the fires. He promises that he'll be with them when they're in the middle. That's what we see here in Daniel chapter 3, friends. What does Jesus say to us today? Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He has called each and every one of us to costly discipleship. Quoting Matthew 28 may get old for some of you. Maybe you've seen it in too many missions pamphlets or Christian t-shirts. 
This is radical, friends. The call to discipleship is a call to resist idolatry. It's a call to obey God, even at the risk of death. But it's a promise that God will be with you. Don't ever let that become rote or routine or old. It's the greatest call to the greatest mission in the world. He's with his people. And he carries them through the fire. But isn't that fascinating? Remember the two biblical uses of fire. Judgment or refinement. Do you see that that this fire in Daniel 3 did both of those things? The mighty men who obeyed Nebuchadnezzar and disobeyed God, they were judged. They were killed by the fire. The real mighty men, our three friends, went into the same fire and came out refined. It reminds me of what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Ian de Good comments here that the issue is not whether Israel's God can keep his servants alive, but whether Nebuchadnezzar can. In a similar way, our own idols often turn out to be liars, unable to deliver either the rewards that they promise or the judgments they threaten. Do you see that? God will not be mocked. He will be honored. He will be faithful. Now, in closing, I just have one more question and a truth for us to consider. Here's the question. When you read this chapter, when you read Daniel 3, do you place yourself in the story? And if so, who do you identify with? You see, it's so easy to read this chapter and to identify with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the heroes of the story, right? And let's be clear. All Christians, we we should, as Christians, all aspire to be like them in this story. That's part of the point. But... If we're honest, even for a second, we should all identify more with King Nebuchadnezzar in this story. If our sinful hearts had their way, each and every one of us would call everyone within miles to bow down and worship us. We might not say it like that, but we, like King Nebuchadnezzar and the tower builders before him, We want to make a name for ourselves. That's the honest truth. We love to publish ourselves. 
This is why social media thrives. It's why GoPro has made so much money. Not because of our great humility, but because our hearts, as Calvin says, are constant idol factories. This has put us at enmity with and in rebellion against a holy God. Look what Jesus has to say about this in the language that he uses. Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 through 43 and 49 through 50. Jesus says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Then in verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's the truth. Because we are more like Nebuchadnezzar in this story than the three faithful men. We deserve the fiery furnace, like the mighty men in this story. We deserve judgment. But here's the good news. For those who turn from sin and trust in Christ as their only hope of salvation, there's mercy and there's grace instead of judgment. Jesus, on the cross, took the full amount of God's just wrath on our behalf. And we get to walk free, like these three men in Daniel. Why was Jesus able to die in our place? Because he was sinless. Remember Jesus' temptation by Satan? What's one of the things that Satan tempted Jesus with? Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus was tempted with false worship, but he never faltered. He was tempted in every way we are, and yet without sin, Hebrews tells us. The king that God set up on Mount Zion in Psalm chapter 2 is the Christ who died for us. It's a glorious and life-changing truth. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you today. Turn from your sin and trust Jesus. It's the only way. You can be delivered from the coming wrath of God. You can also be delivered from a life that's all about the worship of you. It's freeing. It's life-giving. It's good news. 
Now, if you are a Christian, rest in this truth. Pursue obedience to God at all costs. Know with all your heart that God is faithful, that he's sovereign, and that he's with you. Let's pray.